Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, I'll chat with an artist whose work mashes up Caravaggist grit with fashion industry glamour. At the Contemporary Arts Museum Houston, Marilyn Minter is the subject of a mid-career survey, her first. The exhibition, titled Marilyn Minter, Pretty Dirty, begins with Minter's 1969 photographs of her mother, a series which effectively established Minter's interest in the collision of beauty and coarseness, continues through her 1970s explorations of surface, texture, and objecthood, eventually arriving at her famed work of the last 15 or so years, the shiny evocations of over-the-top, industry-driven beauty and how it is made and subverted. The exhibition, which was curated by Bill Arning and Alyssa Uther, will be on view through August 2nd. It'll then travel to Denver, Orange County, and to Brooklyn. Minter's work has been the subject of exhibitions at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Museum of Contemporary Art Cleveland, the Museum of Modern Art New York, and the Contemporary Arts Center Cincinnati. One more Minter event. Along with Cindy Sherman and Lori Simmons, Minter has organized Choice Works, an auction that will benefit both Planned Parenthood New York City and Planned Parenthood Federation of America. The auction, which features work from the organizers, Richard Serra, Cecily Brown, Wangeshi Mutu, Christopher Wool, and dozens of other artists, is already underway on Artsy. A preview of works on offer in the auction will be held at Sotheby's on May 15th. Tickets start at $250. If you're looking for a gift to the program to celebrate our 183rd show, I really like the Charlene Von Heil. Go to choiceworks2015.com for more information and to bid. On the second segment, Constance Lou Allen joins me to discuss her new book, 500 Cap Street, David Ireland's House. The book looks at how Ireland, a San Francisco-based conceptualist, converted his house into a total artwork, and details how that house has informed and motivated artist residency programs ever since. It was published by University of California Press. But first, Marilyn Minner, after the break. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Dear Nemesis, Nicole Eisenman, 1993-2013, on view at its La Jolla location from May 9th through September 6th. For 20 years, Nicole Eisenman has developed a creative vision that combines high and low culture with virtuosic skill. Fusing centuries-old art-making conventions and a multitude of art historic influences with contemporary subject matter, she has created depictions of community, identity, and sexuality. Her incisive socio-political critique operates through the quotidian and the absurd in ways that are both formally playful and visually breathtaking. For more information, visit mcasd.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents the first retrospective in more than 20 years of the renowned American sculptor Melvin Edwards, including never-before-exhibited works. Melvin Edwards's artistic career spans crucial periods of upheaval and change in American culture and society. The Nasher exhibition Melvin Edwards' Five Decades features a broad selection of works, primarily in welded steel, including his best-known works, Lynch Fragments, an ongoing series of small-scale reliefs begun in Los Angeles in the early 1960s and born out of the social and political turmoil of the civil rights movement. On view January 31st to May 10th. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. And we're back. Marilyn Minter, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to start with the earliest paintings in the show instead of with your more recent stuff, which is more famous. The earliest paintings in the show date to the mid-70s. Let's start with a 1976 painting that juxtaposes a piece of plywood against a linoleum floor 
1977 painting that shows the spill of a brown liquid on the same linoleum floor. And these strike me as two paintings that right off the bat establish your interest in surface and, and ways of representing surface on, at that point, canvas. Why were you interested in surface? You know, it's so interesting. Everyone asks why I do everything, and I guess that's your job. But my experience has been I just have this urge to, to do it, and I figure it out later why I did it. And, I, you know, especially when I, I mean, when I saw all the body of work from the 70s up until the present in Houston at the install, it hit me. There's the same threads through everything. And, and and what's you know it's really specific is everything is pink and green from the very earliest work. These floors were all these kind of green linoleum floors or green gray. It's always this kind of not bright pinks and greens. And at the time I was in retrospective, there's also a photograph of a piece of plywood on a painting of a piece of plywood on the linoleum floor photos on the floor from 1976. Right. You notice that one of them is a photo of a piece of plywood. So there's this, and then there's also a ceramic piece in the show that I made. I made these black and white clay photographs in 19, I'd say probably 1979. That's right. Clay Polaroid, 1979. It's glazed stoneware. And it's also a piece of plywood on the floor. So I, I thought of myself as a conceptually based photorealism. Now, when I went around to try and get a gallery to show me in New York City at the time, they said, well, yeah, you're a photorealist, but you're so boring. You know, I didn't have any shiny balls, you know, to show off my technical masturbation. But I was technically a masturbator if I needed to be one. <laughs> I mean, I could always copy anything. Well, they're, they're fascinating paintings for, for lots of reasons. And there, there are a couple of artists who kind of were maybe playing on the same field and who I'm wondering if you were paying attention to at the time. One of them is Sylvia Plymac Mangold. It's so stunning. Every, I always thought she worked on with wooden floors. That's And that, I, that's why I went to linoleum. And then she said, yeah, I had no idea she was doing linoleum. I knew her doing measurements with rulers when I was in grad school. I thought they were brilliant. And uh, uh, and then she opened linoleum floors, too, and everyone thought I copied her, but I was blind to her. I was like a kid. You know, I, I didn't even know. I just moved to New York in 76. I didn't even, you know, I wasn't paying any attention to anything around me. And I, it really felt terrible because I, uh, I was just, you know, it was that moment where you're, you know, you're pretty... Or an artist is like just concentrating on their own vision, but she was as close to being, we were very tangentially working on the same thing, but too bad we never met or, you know, got to talk to one another because we had a lot in common. I thought she was a lot better and smarter than I was too with the rulers and measurements. And then she stopped doing it all together. Another artist who came to mind immediately, uh, we were talking about photos on the floor from 1976 a moment ago, is Michael Snow, who was also playing with questions of representation and reality and duplication. The filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. And, and photographer. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I I just barely know the name. I do the. I thought he was a filmmaker. He did. Oh God. He was. He did. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. There was a thing on Static. Yeah. What was the name of that? It was a famous movie. 
Yeah, Michael Snow, the single the single shot wavelength piece. It, and 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 then the, kind of the third artist, and this is probably much more tangential, is your your sync study of 1978 plays with surface and texture in a really interesting way. It, it there's a block of frozen peas, there's a drain, and there's an egg and that has been broken open. And the yolk is on the surface of the sink, and the shell is kind of surrounding the yolk. There is a lot going on in that painting. I was interested in, in at that point. I did another one that the the peas are out of focus, and everything. And the only thing I did it like I was doing these pairings where I thought of focus and non and non-focus, almost like I was the camera. It's sort of like what I'm working on today where the peas and the inside of the sink is out of focus and only the rim is in focus. And, uh, but that didn't make the show because we couldn't find it. <laughs> you know, as I was looking at the painting, I, I was thinking to myself, oh, that's, that's a familiar thing. And eventually I remembered that Ed Ruscha has painted peas and he's kind of playing with realism and surface, but in a totally different way. I was thinking, you know, honestly, what, what I think of is it was, I did a lot of Richter studies with focus and non-focus, not knowing he existed. But I was in my 20s and, you know, I read art magazines, but Richter wasn't in any art magazines in the 70s. So it was, you know, the collective unconscious. I was really thinking all the time about focus and non-focus. There's one detail in that painting that I'd like to spotlight, and it's on the lower right where one of the eggs... Sh- so, so, so you have kind of framed the, the painted image with kind of a black outline, kind of like a black pencil style outline, and everything is within, you know, everything in the sink is within that outline. And one thing comes just outside of that outline on the far lower right of the canvas, the shadow of the eggshell. Oh, you're like, you're like a detail person like me. These are kind of... I know it. Nobody else pays any attention to. That was basically just a way to model and going out, you know, like if I was trying, if I was going to cut it there, which I never did. I always, this is the, you know, I really wanted these to be, I was actually thinking constantly about showing it as an illusion. So I wanted the, 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 the uh, test colors on the side for the peas and the, so I wanted to just extend that illusion. It wasn't. Uh, it was an unconscious way to just go outside that the rectangle to mm. make it to make you know that it's. I'm creating an illusion. I, I also did at the same time. See, I had a at the time in this the 70s, and this is a terrible thing, but I don't I don't I don't have anything but slides of these images because I was getting no attention. I just sort of oh I must not be very good. I had no confidence, so I just sort of let these things disappear. But I actually used to paint black and white photos, and I would actually just enlarge them. Like instead of, there were 8 by 10 photos in those days. I printed them in my darkroom, and then I'd make a painting of a black and white photo of one of these really boring things like peas in the sink or a pencil on a table. But I'd, I'd, I'd leave it in a raw canvas frame like this. You understand what I'm saying? I do, I do. And, and and listeners will too if they look, go to manpodcast.com and look at the image of this painting. It's yeah, it's pretty do have clear. And I just would stick them on the wall right next to the sinks. So it was just you know I thought they were really smart, but nobody else did. Well, I think glazed stone the, the glazed stoneware piece, clay Polaroid that we were talking about a moment ago, is really smart. And I wonder why that is something you tried and did. Well, I was really playful and curious. I always have been. Like, I'm super curious on esoteric things. 
And I was at this place called Oxbow on a residency. And I didn't have, and I was there for just a month. So I, I needed too much, I needed too much of a setup. So what I, so I, the only, you know, to make any art at all, I thought I'll just make, I'll just work with clay. Cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to transport all my paints and, you know, for just one month, it took me too long to make a painting. So I just took uh, a piece of paper and I, and I dipped it in slip. And since I was painting actual paintings of black and white photos, I thought I'll just make a black and white photo. And at the time, no one had ever seen it before. And I made a whole bunch of them, but you know, like I said, nobody paid any attention to me. So they just broke over the years. This is the only one I had left. I just glazed the photo surface, the photo surface of a piece of plywood on a, on a linoleum floor. So that piece is, is dated to 1979, and there's a seven-year gap in the exhibition between that 1979 piece and 1986's Big Girls. Ah, I was in rehab. <laughs> That'll tell you everything. <laughs> so you made nothing, or well, you no, just no, made nothing you like? a lot of work, but it's just so terrible. Uh, the, uh, I did I did do a body of work that's very good in, in 1983 to 85 with a, a German artist Christoph Kohlhofer and it was a collaboration and I sort of a blank area that's interesting you notice most people don't even notice but I will talk about that uh, there was this moment in time where in the 80s and early early late 70s where there was this huge the art world at that point. I don't know how old you are, but there were there, when I, I, I'm old enough to know there were art movements that lasted five years. Sometimes there were two of them. Sometimes there were minimalism or and or concept, and then there was the beginning of conceptualism, and then there was this giant movement that hit New York called neo-expressionism. And a lot of the neo-expressionism artists were German artists, and of course, then the American version was Julian Schnabel. And so there, there was really this privilege of, I'd say, I'd say the, the gestural mark. And since I was, I, I always had this gift to be able to copy anything, I could create that illusion, but I saw how phony it looked. It just, I knew, and, and, and even in my, you know, what I collect, I'm a big collector. I love art. I, I, that's all I ever want to buy. I'm only interested in art I can't, I, I don't do. You know, I love gestural painting. I love Cy Twombly and Mary Hallman. And, uh, you know, I, I could create that illusion, but I, it never looked legitimate. And so I did this, like a lot of young artists, I wanted to fit into, I was ambitious, but no confidence. And I really wanted to fit into the, a dialogue. And I was getting shut out. Everyone said, oh, loosen up, loosen up. And because I'm, I'm naturally a very you know, what's the word? I'm a builder, you know, I build paintings and uh, I'm very analytical and I, I'm very labor intensive and I take a really long time. And the gestural market does not come natural to me. And I didn't trust uh, the fact that what I did very well just seemed like too easy. I didn't trust exploring and expanding that. I thought I had to challenge myself. So I made terrible, terrible gestural paintings. And my and they were just dreadful, and that's why you don't ever see any of those. And then I got together with this German artist, and we worked in the Lower East Side, East Village, and that was a you know that's a yeah, that's a punk scene in the 70s and early 80s. And I did what everybody else was doing, and I did it a little more basically. 
I got clean and sober in 1985. And then I, I started thinking on my own and taking much more risks. And that's when I went back to being able to trust that I have a gift for copying and making that part of my, my art. Now, the, in the interim between me doing those terrible gestural paintings, I was in that collaboration team with a German artist we showed at Gracie Mansion, and we made some pretty good paintings. And he was doing the gestural mark, and I was painting realism, and we were topping, we were, we were making image sandwiches. They look really good to me now, but he's still, he's in Germany, and I don't know how to get hold. We, 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 we split ways a long, long time ago. One of them's in the catalog, too. This uh, one, of course, yeah. Strange Fruits from 1986. <laughs> Looks pretty good, huh? Yeah, it does. It really does. And there are some hints there, maybe even about where you were going to go. Yeah, someday I'm going to show them. At about this time, coming out of the mid-'80s, you also move from painting on canvas to painting on panel. That's because I saw Gerhard Richter's paintings at Barbara Gladstone, the, the early work of the paint swatches, and they were all cracked. And he was using enamel paint, and I saw, uh-oh, this is my future, because they were like 20 years old then. So I thought I better go to enamel uh, on metal, because that will not crack. It's not brittle, and it's easy to move. Ah, so it was more you were thinking about Archival. the future lives of the objects rather than a certain surface. Yes, exactly. You know, if we go back into kind of nutty art history, I, I or, or the nerdy art history, I love, you know, 17th century paintings on copper. I love those surfaces. Did you have to learn how to adjust to a very different, to a metallic service after having worked on canvas? Uh, well, when I did the canvas, I used to paint layers and layers of enamel, so and sand between. So I created the exact same surface on metal. So you were already prepared for it. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that much of a and 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 I've also had to adjust every time. There was a moment in time when when I had enough money to actually fabricate the panels and everybody, we different fabricators use different auto body paint to spray the surface. And that was the real, that was the biggest adjustment. And then we, now we're doing everything in house. We do everything in house except print the photos. We build all the panels. We build the sets for the videos. You know, I have a, I have a really tight crew here of six, nine people, I think. Not anymore. Six. Not anymore. Now down to six. Yeah, heartbreaking. They're getting too successful. I have, you know, they're making more money. Their heart. <laughs> you mentioned that you paint in enamel. You have for, you know, since at least the late 80s, frequently included hands and fingers in your paintings. And we see lots of nail polish in your paintings. Is there a relationship between the enamel we see on fingernails and, and, and the stuff you make your paintings out of? Well, it's, it, the only relationship is the same name. They're very, very different paint. And the way I use it... But there's a reference there. It, yeah, they're called... Or there could be. Are you, are you talking about the food porn specifically? Well, starting there, yeah. I always want to point this out to people. I don't know if you noticed, but there's half of these... Not half, but one, two, three, four of these hands are men hands. Man hands. <laughs> I did notice that. And in one of them, for example, is, is holding corn on the cob in a suggestive way. Yeah, yeah. That, I'm glad you... I mean, you can't miss... You yeah. can't, I mean, yeah, I think... It's people fair. just... Um, you do notice details. You're, you're right. You're like the same kind of uh, wavelength. And so, I, you know, because I was going in, into uh, cookbooks to get the images, and they were mostly man, men's hands, frankly. And so I just changed them into female hands all the time, half the time. But that's uh, nobody ever notices that. And I guess when I was trying to create 
at this point I was still touching on illusionistic gestural painting, but I was faking it. I was doing the underpainting, but I was letting it be as messy as possible. I wasn't cleaning it up because enamel just automatically drips. And I liked the way I would run a color and, it, and, and I love just like putting it in and watching it fall apart. And then I'd let that dry. And then my assistants and myself would turn the projector on and put the dot screen in. And so it was this fake mechanization too, because it looked like it, the surfaces were screened, but they were all hand painted dots. So it was really this kind of fake expressionism and fake mechanization. And that's how, and I made them all just to make a TV commercial. Yeah, the, the, the TV commercial is, you know, ran on late night television in, I think, 1990. Yeah, 1990. Uh, yeah, we, we filmed it in 89 and we, and I made the paintings in 89. And I paid everybody with these paintings because I had no money. How much do you think it costs to rent 30 seconds on David Letterman? The, I don't know, but I do know that it was less than an ad in art form at the time. It was $1,800. <laughs> and nobody knew because you're only buying sections of the country. Yeah, I only bought the tri-state area. And uh, it's like nobody even knew this. I couldn't believe it. Have you been tempted to do that since then? Oh, yeah. But the difference is the Internet. Why bother, you know? But I did make this video that's also in the retrospective. I did make Green Pink Caviar, a one-minute version. I made it specifically to go. I thought I could talk movie theaters into putting it in between their movie trailers. And nobody... And I was only going to go to art theaters like the Sunshine or Angelica or if I, you know, IFC. Everyone turned me down except for the Sunshine. Green Pink Caviar is a 2009 video we'll get to in a minute. It's um, in Moments Collection. My guest is Marilyn Minter. We'll be right back after a break. Fun news. The Modern Art Notes podcast is going back on the road. Please join Philida Barlow and me at the Nasher Sculpture Center on Saturday, May 30th at 2 p.m. Among other things, we'll be talking about a major new exhibition of her work curated by the Nasher's Jed Morse. It will include the first museum commissions Barlow has taken on since her Duveen commission at the Tate Britain last year. Barlow's exhibition at the Nasher opens on the day of our taping, May 30th, and will remain on view through August 30th. Philida Barlow is coming back to the Man Podcast at the Nasher. Hope to see you there. On view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, Framing Desire, Photography and Video, showcasing over 40 recent acquisitions alongside iconic photographs and videos from the permanent collection. Includes works by Larry Clark, Philip Lorca de Corsia, Reniki Dykstra, Debbie Grossman, Candida Hofer, Robert Maplethorpe, Gordon Matta Clark, Nicholas Nixon, Catherine Opie, Arne Svensson, and Frank Thiel through August 23rd. Also, Focus, Mario Garcia Torres, through June 14th. For more information, visit themodern.org. And now back to my conversation with Marilyn Minter. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the bit about enamel and, and dripping and, and kind of how you made those paintings. Cause... Well, I couldn't do expressionism in the real way, so I had to fake it. I mean, I could, but it looks so phony. Yeah, I, had to, I mean, that's interesting. Cause, so take a piece like Chiaroscuro from, from 1991, which is enamel on metal. It, it, it's dripping. It's kind of granular. I painted it with a projector on, and then I went over it with uh, dots. 
to try and, you know, it's dripping. And then I, I just literally tried to hold it into place with, with an image of masturbation, which nobody ever was ever doing. <laughs> I'm curious about how you got from embracing and encouraging that kind of granularity in 1991 to where you get 15 or 20 years later, where the images are much slicker, much smoother, much higher polish. I don't, I don't mean that as a metaphor. I mean, like actually higher polish. I learned, I, I actually was, you know, I, I got really versatile in enamel. So instead of painting enamel like uh, expressionistically, like I am in uh, in uh, chiaroscuro, I and, and the food porn and pretty much all of the uh, as we call them the porn paintings, I learned how to work with enamel in translucent layers. And as soon as I got, I, I learned about the depth that I could get with putting thin, thin, thin layers on top of one another in the paintings, I was hooked. So technical proficiency opened doors. Yes, it turned, it changed, yeah, it looked so much better to me than oil mm. or acrylic, because I had always worked in oil or acrylic, and uh, I was really good at it, but I never, ever got the kind of surface, because I'm so interested in surfaces, as you see, and details and things that most people ignore that I couldn't get, I never could get that in oil. It was like, whoa, I thought I was died and went to heaven. You know, these these paintings from the late 80s and early 90s are, are really kind of beautiful, visually seductive paintings. And when we think of that period in New York now, we think of a place that where, where, where artists were, you know, suspicious of beauty, if not downright hostile to the idea of so were you conscious of that at the time? Were you conscious of that kind of anti-beautyism, or is that only the kind of thing we notice later? Back to, you know, like I'm pretty curious, so I, I know what's going on all the time, but I sort of didn't care. You know, it wasn't like I could, like, I, I there a certain, this is one of the reasons that Bill and Alyssa are doing this show, is because they want to give me, a, uh, they want to foreground my work in conceptual thinking, because they don't think, they think that's missing in academia and I know that it is and I know there's always going to be suspicion suspicious of anything that, that's too seductive but I you know I like the idea of of uh, making paradox in, in all in, in everything I do I want there to be men, multiple layers and and to have anything that might be disturbing I can create such a, a I, I want to create such a beautiful soup that you can uh, actually be able to see uh, another layer because it's it's I, I make it look so good or I try to anyway. Like I could paint bit strands, you know, and but if I paint it so beautifully that it's not going to be make you want to gag. Well, that's something that you've become the kind of starting in the mid two thousands that caught on immediately. I'm thinking of a painting like Strut from two thousand four or five at SF MoMA, it, it, and it's a painting of a woman's heel in a Christian Dior high-heeled shoe with some kind of blingy rhinestones on the top of the heel. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, of course. And so there had always been, or there had for a long time been a lot of texture in... in... I started, in, I, I learned how to um, model, I let go of the dot screen, because you see chiaroscuro, and then I'll, and I guess it about... 1997, 98, the drips were gone. 
and I just started the, the technique that you, you, you think you associate my work with now, and that is the layering of enamel with it, it probably uh, I was doing it for a while, but I got I started getting attention in, in 2003. So, so with the with the drips of the enamel in in the, in the mid '90s, there's kind of a certain grit to the surface and technique of making those paintings. And in in the early aughts, we get we get a high degree of finish in the paintings, and the grit, you know, is on the heat on the woman's heel. There, there's a lot of dirt on her heel. Was that a conscious migration, or is that? It was, you know, the idea. Well, I was very conscious because I. I was already working with dirty feet with a great manicures, a pedicure, excuse me. In photographs as early as the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah, dirty feet, which is everyone has, you know, you, live, you work in the garden, you know. You, I mean, Caravaggio has, yeah, yes. Yeah, people's feet get dirty. And I just, it's like never, you know, ever see it, you know, you never, ever, ever see it. And, uh, I, I, you know, except everybody knows it. There's nobody paying images of it. And then uh, it, it all it all comes down to this constant paradox when you look at glamorous images. It's another layer that there's this you know gives you enormous pleasure, uh, but there's also all this shame about oh my God why am I looking at this shallow debased imagery? And then there's another layer where oh wow I'll never look that good you know and I shoot these people and I happen to know they don't even look that good. You know, there's just a brief second you can uh, create that illusion of. And there's a part of me that always rebelled at, at, at advertising imagery. But at the same time, knowing I got so much pleasure out of it, I wanted to show what it feels like. So I wanted all those layers and all the images. I, you know, it's really about how it feels. So, and, you know, we, you know, the fashion industry is so easy to criticize. You know, why would I do that? And people criticize me. I mean, people, uh, you know, I have, I've been criticized because I don't take pot shots at the, uh, at the glamour industry because it, why should I? Women deserve to have images of pleasure, you know, and, and they should deserve to be able to make them too, no matter who it offends. But you could have, so, so to take strut, you could have, you know, her foot could be clean, but you enjoyed the dirt and the grit, both on her foot and on the bottom of the of the shoe. Well, I understand that maybe a foot could get dirty, and I noticed through advertising that they would place grains of sand on, on a foot to sort of show, oh, look, a little dirt here and a little dirt there. So I really just took a trope that already existed in the fashion industry, and I just pushed it all the way. Whereas, you know, jewels in the mouth, they, there's a whole history of artists, photographers, specifically commercial photographers, kissing the diamonds, you know, or, and I just shoved jewelry into my model's mouth until she gagged and just took pictures and paintings, or, or even an egg. There's all these images of, of models uh, kissing eggs, and I just had her bite into it and letting it run down her cheek. And Well, you mentioned kind of things not typically shown in in fashion photographs and in photographs that are meant to be fashionable. And that brings me to freckles. Uh, they're always wiped out. I feel like I'm responsible for putting freckles back into the imagery. Yeah, so first, tell me why you love freckles. Because I'm covered in them. <laughs> and I hated them all my life. Oh, yeah. I know, you know, I'm, I'm not, I was never... I You know, every single female that lives 
at my age group has got such body dysmorphia, I'm sure. And, 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 and then when you talk about young girls, it's doubled and tripled. I mean, the way, at least when I was growing up, I looked at human bodies. You know, now the models are just not even, I mean, you want to give everybody, you want to take them and feed them. And that is the de rigueur, you know, it's, and they're, they're, I always say you can't, I always quote Cocteau, I think he said that you must forgive fashion everything because she dies so young. I love this female grotesquerie that's coming out right now. These artists like Petra Collins and Sandy Kim. I know this is a punk reaction, or at least I think it is. To, to having to look at these flawless, poreless, ribcageless, thigh gap images that are constantly perpetuated through the industry right now. So I, I love that these young girls are just saying, oh, fuck you. Well, the, the painting that's in the show that's probably the best example of this is Blue Poles. Oh, yes. from... yeah, yeah, the pimple. <laughs> well, the pimple and the freckles. And kind of the imperfection or the, you know, the, the non. But I put glitter on her eyes so she looks so pretty. <laughs> yes. So there's kind of an intersection of things here that, that I'd, I'd like to ask about. First, the title of the painting. Well, Jackson Pollock. So absolutely intentional. So did the title come before the color on her eyes? No, I usually t- I figure out the title right when I'm finishing. You know, we'll have an image of this on the website. But so the, the, the freckles and her nose t- and, and, and the area just below her eyes that, that, that is covered with freckles takes up kind of this triangle on the lower third of the painting. You have big blue glittery eyeshadow on the left and the right. And you have eyebrows with a pimple and kind of real eyebrows, not kind of fake photoshopped eyebrows at the top of the painting. And then in the middle, very middle of the painting is the closest the painting's skin, the, the, the model's skin, comes to being what you would see in, in Vogue. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a really interesting model, too. I've used her all the time. She's she's actually, if you saw her, and in, in, she was one of my students, and she's the armpit also. The, she's in the, all so many of my images. She's like two generations of black and white. Her grand, Both sides of her family, black and white, grandparents and parents. Or, or mixed race. And so this young girl, I guess she's in her 30s now. I guess she's, uh, I've, I've, I've known her since she was 18. She is, has got pretty white skin, but she's covered in freckles and she's got stereotypical African, uh, American lips and uh, hair. And she's just gorgeous. <laughs> I'm just madly in love with the way she looks. I always was. Did when you made? Do you remember if when you made this painting, you thought of those zones of the painting as kind of, I don't know, different stages on which to do those different things: freckles, glitter. Yeah, all of the above. Yeah, I was just, I was just always thinking. Uh, but I, I, I thought that I, I've sort of been taking out the narrative lately. I started, I guess, with the bubbles. And seeing things through blowing bubbles or blowing bubble gum up, and then there were freckles and bubbles, and then from there it went to green pink caviar, the video, and and I've been working under glass ever since, so I'm really making another layer between my viewer and the image, creating an illusion of another image between us. You know, you mentioned green pink caviar, so so let's go there next. This is just an extraordinarily colorful 
piece, and I thought it might be a good way to talk about color. How how did you determine? I mean, there's green, there's pink, there's kind of a an, an icy blue. How did you think through what colors should should be there in what in the various versions of of how that of, of what this piece became? This is a this is a, one of those serendipitous events that happens to me every time I I, I shoot commercially. I I don't really shoot anything unless I think I can piggyback art on top. So I don't really do a lot of work. And nobody hires me anyway. I mean, it's like oh, the fashion world likes my, me a lot, but God forbid they, they'd hire me because I'm way, way, way too messy for them and untidy. You have, you have worked for them, though, you Tom Ford. Yeah, that was my only big job. <laughs> and actually, couldn't even, he wouldn't even use half the images because he's, he's his sensibility is so different than mine. He was lovely to work for and a lovely man, but it, I, I, uh, I don't think, I think, you know, he kept trying to clean everything up. And I basically at one point said, well, why did you hire me? <laughs> but he was so lovely and he, he didn't use half the imagery. And I still got paid. So I was very happy. So if I can do a piggyback, I'm going to do it. And what happened is I was doing literally a job for Mac. And the cosmetics firm. Cosmetics firm. I was shooting an eye, their glitter makeup, and I had two models. And whenever I was, and whenever I asked for the models, they didn't know this until until after they saw the green pink caviar, which, which blew up everywhere. And they were very unhappy. But then they, uh, James Geiger, who had a Mac, he's he he embraced it eventually. And what uh, what I was doing is every time I, I hired the models because of how long their tongues were. And and whenever I, they changed the eye makeup, I said, could you come over here and lick off this candy off this glass? <laughs> and we shot video underneath. So you got candy colors because it was the color in the candy. No, I actually, this is all cake decoration mixed with vodka. I said, okay. And so I had two models. And when one was getting made up, I, I had the and the other one come over and, and we just started mixing. We were just playing. We didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, and it was the Mac videographer who did it with me. And I, you know, he and I planned it. And he said, no, they don't care. And uh, they didn't care until they saw it. And then I think they did a 180, though, because he's a lovely man, James Gager. And now they embraced it. It, it ended up going everywhere. And uh, it was just like playing. We were just playing. So... I, you know, it's not one of your paintings, but but green pink caviar has this super saturated color, super intense color, really kind of non-painterly color that's in sea print, like black orchid from from 2012. The color of her lips, which is black-ish with some yellow mixed in, is evocative of of colors you must like because you use over and over again. How what? What do you use to get to the colors you use? Well, that's enamel paint. See how special it is. You think it's just in the paint? You don't think it's the it's decisions you're making about? I'm sure that's part of it. But enamel is just so lush. You know, uh, it's sign painters paint, and I don't. I, I, you know, I know you can create it with oil, but it's it's such it they're they're not sophisticated colors that so much we use it we use them almost like digital you know it's c m y b you know so in blue poles in the blue glitter of her eyeshadow you know it's not one blue it's a lot of different blues i mean it looks like a lot of decisions are getting yeah, made there. always 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 yeah because of the layering you know we can 
like you can see, you can all go all the way back to, to the skin color. I don't know. I mean, I, you can create that illusion with oil, but it's literal in uh, uh, enamel. It's almost like sculpture. So it goes back to technical competence that the color and the depth of the color and the range of the color comes right out of what you can do technically. Yes, exactly. And it takes a long time to make these paintings. You know, it's, and the, the, the reason that I have a, a crew is because I could only make one a year. <laughs> When I was alone, it was just me and what I was alone for years, and then it was me and uh, my not my main assistant for I don't know ten years, and then then we had to do oh, five giant paintings for Reagan projects, and so that's when I went way up and and kids and had to teach everybody. It takes three years to learn how to work with enamel, literally three years. I've had people a, a little faster, but not much. Well, you, you, in addition to making paintings and, and video, as we talked about with, with Green Pink Caviar a moment ago, you also make sea prints. And I'm interested in how you determine what ends up as a painting and what ends up as, as a sea print. And so maybe to have that conversation, I want to bring up two pieces. One is a sea print, Wangeshi Gold 4 from 2009 and a painting that is almost certainly based on about the same five minutes of, <laughs> of, of photographic shooting. Drizzle, Wangeshi Mutu, 2010. Wangeshi's uh, past guest on the Man Podcast. Why, why did one of these images end up as a sea print and the other end up as a painting or vice versa? For a traditional artist, I don't, you know, I, I don't draw. I take photos, and so the photos for me are like drawings, and I, you know, they look, you know, and you talk to any artist who draws, it's like sometimes the idea is best in the drawing, right? And so for me, the photos, I don't. This is film number one. The Wangeshi's. I was still working just with film, and I didn't crop it. It's not touched, basically. I don't manipulate it. Whereas the drizzle painting, oh my God, that's a tongue from one negative. That's a necklace from another negative. The feathers are from another negative. That's a, a, a Frankenstein image, which we call mm -hmm. references. So all of the paintings, anything you see that's painted is a construct. It never existed as a photo. Ah, so do you, do you assemble things in Photoshop as, as a way of drawing, or is it when you're in front of a panel? Uh, in, oh, Photoshop. For, I spent a week making this image. Photoshop. Every, that drip was really just, I created that drip all the way down. In Drizzle, I created it in Photoshop, going all the way down to the end of the page. There's nothing like that in any of the photos. <laughs> so all, all of the paintings are are, you know, one, one, there are some of them that are 80, 80 layers of Photoshop. Do you save those files? How do, what do you, what yeah, do, you do with them? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, they're on my computer. So museums and archival institutions are used to acquiring artists' papers and having them be on paper. Do you think about what will happen to those files on the computer, what, what you want to have happen? That would to them? be lovely. Yeah, but at this point, I'm not at that level. <laughs> Nobody's as interested. But, uh, yeah, that would be lovely. I definitely keep it. I even keep all the references because the very last thing, I don't even look at the references. I just, I just cut it all up, and uh, and then we just take them down, and then I just keep working until I, it's exactly the way I want. It doesn't. Nothing leaves here unless I'm in love with it. But so you save all those big computer files. They're, they're as important as drawings would be to somebody who makes drawings on paper. Yeah, absolutely. I'm... Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really a more of a digital artist than almost anybody, even though I have 30 years, 40 years really of painting history, maybe longer, 50 years, maybe. Yeah, I started working with oil paint when I was about 16. Well, Marilyn Minter, thanks so much for talking with me and congratulations on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. Now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. One-Way Ticket, Jacob Lawrence's Migration Series, and Other Visions of the Great Movement North. Marking the centennial of the Great Migration, this exhibition unites all 60 panels of Jacob Lawrence's Landmark Migration Series at MoMA for the first time in 20 years. It includes other key works that capture the era, such as writing by Langston Hughes, music by Billie Holiday, and photographs by Dorothea Lange, as well as 10 newly commissioned poems. Find out more at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Hammer Museum presents the West Coast debut of Provocations, the architecture and design of Heatherwick Studio. British designer Thomas Heatherwick and his London-based studio are known for unique design concepts ranging from the 2012 Summer Olympics cauldron to the redesign of London's double-decker bus. Provocations includes prototypes, large-scale models, and objects that reveal the astonishing range of the studio's practice. On view now, visit hammer.ucla.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Constance Lou Allen. She's an adjunct curator at the Berkeley Art Museum, where she curated surveys of Paul Koss and Ant Farm, a terrific exhibition on Bruce Nauman's work from the 1960s, and most recently she co-curated State of Mind, a landmark exhibition on early American conceptual art made in California, a show that opened at the Orange County Museum of Art and that made my 2011 Top 10 list. She's written a fantastic new book, titled 500 Cap Street, David Ireland's House, that looks at how one of America's leading conceptualists turned his 1880s San Francisco Victorian, in some ways the house that gave rise to the Mission District as a home to artists, into a total work of art. It's the sort of book that artists will love and from which art history nerds will get 100 ideas. Just as good, Amazon offers it for about 20 bucks, and we'll have a link from manpodcast.com. A couple quick disclosures before we start. The publisher of 500 Cap Street is University of California Press, which will publish my forthcoming book on Carlton Watkins. And while preparing for this show, I learned that an architecture firm that employs my uncle has done some conservation work at 500 Cap Street. On to the interview. Connie Lou Allen, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. So lots of artists live in houses, and lots of artists occasionally take hammer and nail to their houses. What about David Ireland's house, 500 Cap Street, makes it of particular interest? Well, you know, David bought that house uh, in 1975. It's in the Mission District of San Francisco. With certainly no other intention but to uh, have a place to live and work. He had spent a year or so in New York and was returning to the Bay Area. And at that time, the neighborhood was pretty rough, and the house was in bad shape. And so he bought it at a very good price, and he commenced. David was a, a good carpenter. I should in- interject that right now. So he undertook to renovate the house, and it wasn't until he was in the process of doing that that he began to see the house as something more than just a house to live in, but as something that really engaged him as an artist. And so over the next couple of years, uh, as he peeled away the history of the house, layer by layer, taking off the wallpaper, picking up rugs, he began to... And I should note, this is a Victorian house that was built in the 1880s. 1886, it was a fairly typical working man's Italianate row house. Nothing really distinctive about it except one thing, 
which is one of the things that attracted David to it, and that is that on the second floor of the house, there's this beautiful, graceful, curved wall in the hall for no apparent reason, and it's not typical. I mean, it's just not typical. And also, the house is on a corner, and, and as as we'll see as we continue this conversation, light was extremely important to David, and so the house had this beautiful light on the second floor, and that was another attraction. And, and so, as I was saying, David began to work on the house and to realize that he was he was really uncovering the history of the house as he went, and also realizing that what he was doing was very meaningful to him as an artist, and he began to see it as very much like what he was doing before in making paintings. And so, little by little, this became a kind of living artwork, and David continued to live in it and work in it over the years, and it never was a static art object because he did live in it, but it changed and evolved and things moved around. But mainly what he had done was he had taken the house down to its basic structure. He he had he took the walls down to the plaster so that you could see marks of, of, of its history, scratches, gouges. And then he covered those walls with many layers of polyurethane so they just glowed when the sun came in. And the color would change throughout the day as the sun moved. So it was really, he said at one point he felt like he was living in a painting. And he also put up, you know, things like labels around the house that called attention to the history of the house that kind of well in two two particular in, in a few particular cases when he was removing a punch press and a safe from the house and managed to gouge the wall and dent the floor instead of trying to cover up those uh, marks he put little labels by them as if they were artworks and commemorated the event with the date november 5th i think it was Right. The safe gets away for the first time, November 5th, 1975. And the safe gets away for the second time, <laughs> November 5th, 1975. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's a very Duchampian gesture, which is, you know, what, what you designated art is art. So he made those, those marks, little artworks in and of themselves. You wrote that the house came to be something of a self-portrait. I wonder if you have one or two places in the house that you think are particularly self-portraity. Oh, yeah. Well, the, yes, very definitely. And the, the house is two stories. The ground floor is very different in effect and in every way from the second floor. First of all, it's quite dark as opposed to the top floor. And it ha- it contains the dining room, which originally had been two rooms, but by the time David moved in, it was one large room. And in that room, there are all kinds of relics from his former life. I should say that David came to art making rather late. He had originally wanted to be a um, industrial designer and draftsman and received a degree in 1953 in industrial art from CCAC, California College of Arts and Crafts, as it was called then, and did many things before he returned to school in 1972 when he enrolled at the Art Institute in San Francisco to get his master's. And in those intervening years, he traveled widely and spent a lot of time in Africa and eventually became a safari guide. And so what you will find in the dining room are all kinds of relics from those experiences. He even had a shop on Union Street in San Francisco in which he sold things like antlers and elephant stools and so forth. And so that room really is sort of um, the history of that part of David's life. And you can find some objects from those African adventures in the rest of the house, but mainly they're located in the in that dining room. And then there are other there are other objects that speak of David's past. There's a nice sort of cupboard 
that was from his family and which he stored all kinds of objects. There are artworks by other artists, friends of his, that became incorporated into the house. And then he had taken all kinds of materials that, that came from the house itself or as he worked on it, like wallpaper peelings, and put them in jars to preserve them. So he even commemorated that part of his life, that is, the renovation of the house. So Ireland is is one of a, a pioneering generation of American conceptualists who were based in California, a group that includes the marvelous Tom Marioni, Terry Fox, Bonnie Shirk, Paul Koss, Larry Salton, Mike Mandel, and so on. So what of Ireland and his conceptual interests do we see in the house, or how do we see them play out in, in what he did with and how he used the house? Well, when David went back to school, to the Art Institute, he became part of that group that you just mentioned. They were younger than he was, because he'd had this whole other life beforehand. And they had, their work looks different, but they had certain things in common, which I think things that are we can characterize as conceptual art in that. They were not so interested in, in a product, a product to sell, but they were much more interested in the process. And, of course, the house is all about the process. They were not. In, they were really rejecting the sort of commercial aspects of art. Certainly, that was true of, of David as well. And I think this is very specific to the Bay Area. There was very little difference in their art lives and their other lives. In other words, they didn't make a big distinction between their art and their non-art. In Paul Koss's case, he's a rock climber, and several of his works refer to that activity. And uh, that's true in Tom Marioni and, and all of the artists we just mentioned. So I think David is really personifies that. So in in reading the book, which which is just beautifully illustrated and 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 which smartly details kind of the way in which he 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 built and used and changed and played with with the structure and the interior spaces, you know, I thought of the way so many East Coast-based artists of the same generation made work that focused around decay and destruction and dissolution, particularly of houses. Gordon Maddock-Clark's Splitting, for example, dates to 1974, which is almost exactly when Ireland is is working on 500 Cap Street. So is is it interesting or meaningful or revealing of anything that at the same time Eastern artists are focused on degeneration, that Ireland and, and really other West Coast artists are focused on regeneration? I'm not sure about that, but I, I could say that in David's case, it was both a reconstruction and construction. I mean, he really did deconstruct the house. The only difference is, is he didn't chop it up like <laughs> Gordon Monte Clark, but he put it back together. But it was a kind of an unearthing process in a way that Gordon was too, to reveal the sort of structure. And David did that in a different way. I'm not sure that I can I could really make that distinction though as a general rule. Does Ireland make work, artworks specifically for the house, for installing in the house, for being considered that way as artworks in, in C two? Yeah, he did. He well, you know, his famous dumbballs, I should explain. The dumbballs are one of the signature signature works of, of David Ireland and they consist of they're they're a perfect sphere of cement and he made them by tossing wet cement from hand to hand, gloves on, for hours. He sometimes said twenty hours, but you know, I think David was somewhat of a myth maker. But in any case, a long time, without interruption, and when the when the cement finally it's a perfect sphere. 
And he made many, many of these. And you could find them in the house, sitting on shelves or in balls, in groups or single. And there's a nice picture in the book of his of the process of making these balls. And it's kind of fun to flip through the book looking for pictures of the dumbballs, too. Let's let you find them. But, and I should say that there are a lot of pictures in the book which haven't been seen before, which is something that gave me great pleasure because we used a lot of David's own photographs, which really hadn't been used before. And then we were able to unearth some that hadn't been used. But getting back to, to works, he, he, he used the house also as raw material, literally. He loved, the, there was a basement area, which he really loved. It was a cave. And he liked sitting down there because it was quiet and he could think. And he would also take, take uh, cement and dirt from the walls and use those materials to make work sculptures, basically. He made little parfait glasses. With, he made lamp bases, lamps with cement bases, rather. All kinds of objects. Cement was one of his favorite, objects, favorite materials because he liked the fact that it was always available. It's a really a democratic material. It could be found anywhere. Really cheap. So you'll see that there's a lot of work that involves that material. And he also used copper a lot. So he did. He used he used materials in the house to make objects, and he made distinct objects that he placed in the house. And then he made objects from things he had found in the house from the previous owners, like brooms. That apparently, the previous owner, who had been an accordion maker, who had lived in there from 1937 to 1975, saved everything. Every rubber band off of every newspaper he got every morning, those were preserved in a jar. Every broom, it seems, that he'd ever had, those were wired together in in a circular sculpture that, that now is owned by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And a, a chair that had only three legs He found, uh, became the basis of another artwork that David made. He attached a little notebook with uh, stories in it that talk about a question, why has this leg been removed, and so forth. You mentioned the basement. There's a great two-page spread in the book, and we'll have both of these pictures on manpodcast.com. Ireland sitting on a chair, kind of reclining. It's like an an, an armchair with, with cement being poured down. <laughs> yes, preventing anyone from ever sitting in it again. But that is interesting in, in a couple of ways, because that was a sort of prototype for a, a piece of work he did at the San Francisco Art Institute, in which he uh, poured cement down a staircase that's in the middle of the gallery. And he called it Smithsonian Falls, so it's a kind of a pun on Smithsonian, excuse me, Smithsonian Falls for PK, and PK is, is Paul Koss. So, yeah, I loved seeing that because I had never seen that before I started researching the house and David's work in the house. And, you know, to find that sort of prototype was exciting. That doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I guess it was just destroyed somewhere along the line. Smithsonian Falls was destroyed? No, 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 the chair with the the cement. Well, Smithsonian Falls had to be destroyed because no one could go up and down the stairs, you know, so they (laughs) had to chip away at it. I was going to ask. But I want to give a plug to the fact that we're going to be doing an exhibition of David's work at the Art Institute in San Francisco in January, which is when the house is going to reopen, and we're going to reproduce that work. Oh, we're, oh going to, we're going to pour cement down the stairs all over again. Well, we'll have an image of that on, on manpodcast.com, and viewers slash listeners will see, will immediately grasp the kind of Duchampian Duchampian ness of, of of the piece. I mean, it's not a nude descending a staircase. It's, you know, concrete descending a staircase. It, it makes 
an idea that Duchamp sort of leaned toward playing with abstractly and really makes it abstract. It's it's a really major uh, piece from 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 the era from the 1980s. I should say that we. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't want to interrupt, but I was just saying that it, I mentioned that January was the month in which the house will reopen and when the show will take place simultaneously. And you know, the house has been under renovation again this time by Jensen Architects and Stephen Oliver and Company, so that it can open as a study center, an archive, an event space. Uh, it was purchased by Carly Wilmans, who established the 500 Chap Street Foundation, and she's put a lot of effort and thought into how this house will again live in the Bay Area and beyond. David was very social. He had lots of parties and dinners and events where take took place there. Douglas, Douglas Dunn dancers, for example, danced in the house one time, and people would come to visit from from near and far, and he always welcomed people to the house and a few times opened it up as in an open house. So Carly wants to retain that that spirit. She said, she said, these are her words, I don't want to put a bell jar on the house. And, you know, there are lots of house museums in the world, and I talk about some of them in the book, but they're all static. You know, they, they're, they are just as they were. But this will not be the case with David's house. Things will move. Things will take place there. And Carly really wants it to be a, a, a very lively space. One of the one of the interesting connections you make in the book is 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 has to do with that kind of liveliness, and it's the relationship between Ireland uh, artists' houses and artists' residency programs. Could you detail a little bit of of, of how exactly that sentence makes sense? How 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 Ireland's interest in residency programs and how kind of this house helped guide him as he participated in several? Well, you know, David, toward the end of his life, began to really worry about the future of the house. And there were attempts, all of which failed to preserve it by a museum acquiring it. He applied once for a grant to, to research other house museums and residency programs to see if he could establish a plan for his house, and he never did get that grant. And then he, he was really downcast at the end because he was no longer living in the house the last few years of his life. He died in 2009 because he just physically couldn't manage it, although he visited the house several times a week even then. And the house was going to just get sold as a house in the mission. And it was really at the very, very last minute that luckily Carly Wilmans learned about the house and and purchased it. And David was aware of that. He met Carly and he was really, really relieved. So I think David, you know, David had a hard time letting go of the house in a certain way, but at the same time, I think that he really wanted to see it continue, but continue in a kind of living way as a sort of residency program. That doesn't mean that artists, at least at first, will be living in the house, but they'll be able to spend the time in the house, use the archive, you know, and maybe make objects that can be added to the house, and all that's possible. And Ireland himself also helped a bunch of artist residency programs kind of physically exist, including at Washington Project for the Arts in Washington. Well, he, in that case, again, Jock Reynolds, who uh, wrote the introduction to this book, is now the director of the Yale Art Gallery, but at one time he was the director of the now defunct Washington Project for the Arts, and then, and then he also was at the Addison 
And in those two cases, he invited David to um, design artist apartments. This is subsequent to the works on the house. So he used a lot of the same techniques and with the same sort of spirit and attitude, and he, he created those two apartments. But even more significantly, David at one point bought a, a, a just a cottage, uh, not far, about four blocks from 500 cap, it was at 65 cap, and he bought it as, as a spec house to redesign himself. And he, he made a very radical house out of something that had been a very ordinary house. He had corrugated steel, a la Frank Gehry, on the exterior. And he sort of replicated that curve that I mentioned earlier in a beautiful balcony. And that became the first location of the Cap Street Project, which was a very important and lively residency project in San Francisco for many years that was directed by Ann Hatch, who'd been a long time. After that, he became a long time supporter and friend of David's. So, and he sat on the board of that program. And so he was involved in that very directly. And finally, there are lots of sections in the book or paragraphs that, you know, could almost be exhibition proposals, which is part of the fun of reading the book. I mean, your book goes kind of beyond Ireland's house just being Ireland's house to contextualize lots of things about Ireland's life and the house itself in the context of art past and art present, everything from Jorge Pardo's house in, in Los Angeles and how it came to be to, to Kurt Schwitter's and more. And is there another artist's house and artist's discourse with his, his or her own house that, that is maybe your favorite, that is a particular favorite? Well, I, I haven't necessarily visited all these houses that I described, mind you, but I have some knowledge of them. I, you know, I think probably the one that's in greatest contrast would be the Don Judd Studio, which uh, has recently opened, as, as you know. On Spring Street, New York. On Spring yeah. Street. I mean, first of all, you know, it is static. And second of all, the aesthetic is, is so very different from David's. I mean, David's house has a very unusual feel when you're in it. I mean, it, it's like being in some sort of Victorian fantasy in some ways. And, you know, there are all kinds of odd objects that really, really need, as you know, people would like to know more about. For instance, why is there a copper window on the 20th Street side? Why is the glass not there? And so forth. So it's it's kind of mysterious. I think it has a, an air of mystery about it that you don't really find, in, I don't think, in those other houses. I also recently that Giacometti's studio is going to now be restored and reopened and open to the public. And, of course, there's Ron Cruz's studio with the Ponzi and endless examples. But I don't think there's anything that's like Davis. I love it. Connie O'Allen, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, you're very welcome. My pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.